The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. This episode is the second of two talks from the Build Conversation series, which explores new perspectives from design, architecture, engineering, science and the arts to reflect on how these disciplines can address the urgent issues of our times. Each of the talks responds to one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. BUILD program curator Joni Taylor chairs a conversation with two visionary thought leaders using their exploration of design practices to reflect on our relationship to life below water, global goal number 14. Dr Danielle Thromek is a Badawong woman of the UN Nation. She works as a spatial and cultural designer and researcher, considering how to indigenise the built environment. Alex Goad is an industrial designer and founder of Reef Design Lab. Together, Danielle and Alex discuss how we can create non-human-centred design to preserve biodiversity, restore and regenerate marine life and waterways. This talk is supported by the Ove Arup Foundation and was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House Centre for Creativity in September 2022. Hi everyone, welcome to the second uh, conversation in our BUILD series, Life Below Water. I'm Joni Taylor, I'm the curator of the BUILD program and I'm joined tonight um, in conversation with two special guests, Dr Danielle Romek and Alex Goad. Welcome. The program is supported by the Ove Arup Foundation whose founder, Ove Arup, who was known as the philosopher-engineer, helped to build the Opera House together with Jorn Utzen and later Peter Hall and many other people. Tonight, I've chosen the theme Life Below Water as a way to explore ideas with our two guests about how they respond to water in their work and also to explore with you, the audience, this fascinating and timely topic. It's a springboard for a larger conversation about how architecture and design can restore, regenerate and rewild our destroyed marine environments and waterways and ultimately how it all connects together. Now we know the built environment contributes massive amounts of carbon, it has huge amounts of extraction of natural resources, so how can the built environment help and how does design actually have any part to play? Tonight we'll discuss all things water, what's being done underwater to increase the biodiversity and habitats, the importance of waterways and rivers, and ultimately how water is interconnected with everything and is everywhere. I'll be asking our guests and you about how urban design can make spaces for the non-human as well as the human. And we want to hear a bit about non-human centred design. We've all heard about human centred design. How can we create environments for the non-human or the more than human? So before we begin, I did want to just talk about the theme tonight, which is called Life Below Water. So each conversation series we have has been based on one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So there's 17 goals altogether. The last talk we had, um, we, we used the theme Life on Land um, to talk about issues, and today it's Life Below Water. 
Um, what is embedded into the Opera House? Its location and its inspiration. The space we're in here now, here on the northern boardwalk, used to be a peninsula. In fact, the Centre for Creativity, if you were coming here tonight to hear this talk and it was high tide, you would have to take off your shoes, lift up your dresses and trousers and walk through the tidal waters to get here. Um, Jorn Utzen was also inspired by boats and sailing. His father was a naval architect and we know that he was inspired by this when we look up at the sails and shells. Utzen had also said that his preferred approach to the Opera House was on water. And there's also all the unknown things and unplanned factors when you build on the water. Who would have known how magnificent the materials that were chosen looked when they reflect on the water? And who would have known that some of the water creatures, such as Benny the seal, who comes to sit here on the unused steps, would be so attracted to some of the man-made design interventions that we have on the water? So, enough from me. We'll begin tonight with hearing from Danielle um, about her work and projects, and then we'll... Um, start a conversation as well. So, thanks, Danielle. Thank you, Jenny. You maybe can't see this uh, slide behind me, but this is a fishing net which uh, I made and my mum is here in the audience. She made one like this, as did uh, my sister, Shan, and it was in an exhibition which was called Jinjama, Defying the Grid. And the idea of the exhibition was about um, how do we, in our cultural practice, understand what is now a gridded landscape? It was very nice to hear, I think it was Jacinta Tobin giving the welcome to country in language. And um, she, she's one of the people that I talk to a lot about water and um, she's one of the people who, uh, through the, this process, I will talk to a lot. I didn't know that was who I was going to hear though, so I just wanted to acknowledge her and to acknowledge all of those people who gave me the knowledge to be able to create something like this. Um, and now we put it in an exhibition, but it's the same technology and the same way of creating um, that we would have used 250 years ago. So I stand on their shoulders re in reality and I think that it's not only in this cultural practice that I do, but in all of the work that I do. So it's a really important acknowledgement to make. I come with a question to every project. Um, it's a project, a question that's about time. And while I'm a spatial designer, in my way of understanding the world, time and space are intertwined. This is, I think, come from my understanding of the dreaming. So you've probably heard of the dreaming. The dreaming is our way of expressing um, how we were created as Aboriginal people. Dreaming is about time in some ways, but it's also about uh, space being created. And we're always in the dreaming in our way of understanding. This is why it comes to forever. Because if we're always in the dreaming, if we're currently dreaming now, that means that we are dreaming beings now as well. The way that the dreaming, you know, the way that I understand it is that I'm a descendant of the dreaming and I'm a descendant of creation. And I think that gives me my capacity to create and to be creative as an Aboriginal person. And so this question about how can we live here in this place forever is one that is intertwined with my identity and who I am and how I understand and see the world. And you, I'll try and explain that a whole lot more as we go through. But it's one that I'm going to come back to you about. So maybe you can start to think about this question a little bit um, as, as we go through this talk. This is a, a picture from my country. 
Um, it's after a ceremony. We still do ceremony on the south coast. I'm a Badawang woman. Um, my ancestors would have spoken the Doriga language. The Doriga language is about 50% the same as the languages spoken here in Sydney. So we probably would have been able to talk to each other pretty well. Um, this is a whale ceremony. Um, it's the after effects of a whale ceremony because I can't show you the ceremony. But you can see imprinted maybe on the ground, if you can't see it, um, I'll explain it to you, is an image of a whale and you can see some footprints that moved in and out and that's what the scuffing is. Um, whales are incredibly important to my people on the south coast. Uh, they have always been the way that we understand many um, sea creatures and our relationship to the ocean is that um, for instance, uh, a whale, a person went out in, into the ocean and stayed there and became whale. That's why they're warm-blooded and that's why they're kin and that's why they're related to us. Um, in, our, in other ways of understanding the world, um, Narawan uh, created the tears, the, uh, the oceans through tears, through crying. And actually that's quite common that crying created ocean. And that intertwined interconnectedness between human and that understanding of human and um, water and ocean is very um, integral to how I see myself. I'm a saltwater woman. And you probably heard that sort of thing being said. It probably has different implications for different people. The way that it, it, it is for me is that I need to be places that I can rust to operate best. Um, and it, that's how I see myself in the world, how I identify who I am and how I can be in the world. The other reason that I do this work, because I was asked to answer the question why I do this work, it's because of these people. Um, and you can see my mum, she's here in the audience, but she's also in two of these pictures. Um, behind me on a bike, that's in Versailles, and then next to me with me in the Tum Tum. Um, and then there's my grandmother and other um, uh, ancestors who are all um, Badawang Yuan women. So we, our lineage is through females. Um, of our of our and the f last one um, who was born on country though was Margaret, the one with the lovely hat at this end. So we've all lived off country, probably I think it's 180 years, and we've been born off country for about 180 years now. Um, yet, despite that, we still have that connection, and we still feel strongly how our responsibilities to country. And to, that, and to how we um, relate to that and how we identify with that, determine who we are and how we operate in the world. So this is why I do this work. It's because I have an obligation to that country, some of the, the, one of the images that I just showed you, because I have a cultural practice that requires it and I also have a spatial practice and I have these, um, this ancestry that asks me to do this work. You can't read this, but I can, so I'm gonna tell you a story. It's really to remind me to tell you this story about my grandmother, who was in one, the middle lady in that picture but earlier. And when I was doing my PhD, she said to... I was lucky enough to be able to ask um, people how um, they connect to country. By people, I mean elders and knowledge holders and other Aboriginal people who I um, was able to um, luckily enough talk to. And in some ways, the best person I got to talk to was my own grandmother because she gave me some things to think about. She talks about walking country. She talks about bushwalking because, you know, um, our older people don't talk about country in the same way we do now. They talk about the bush often. That's a generalisation, but certainly she does. And she talks about when she goes bushwalking, she told me that she um, instinctively knows her way, that she knows where to go and she doesn't get lost. 
She says that she sees everything from the smallest up to the biggest and that she sees deep into the bush and that she loves all of the bush. And I've spent so many um, hours and hours thinking about this and thinking about what does this mean. And I'll get to what it means about water in a minute. But it's an important little story because it, it taught me how do I relate as a designer to country and how can I bring these learnings from my grandmother into my design practice. So the way that I've taken it is when she said that she instinctively knows her way, it's important that country guides me in my work. So country communicates to me and I, I actively listen for the communications of country. I um, spend time on country, substantial amount of time on country with every project that I work on, getting to know country, getting to know what it is, what's the character of that place, what does that place need to thrive and to flourish and what memories does it hold? I, so that's how I understand that I see deep into the bush. I see everything that I possibly can about that and I bring that into the project. Um, when she talks about that she sees the smallest to the largest, the smallest little plant, she said, up to the biggest mountain, I take that as that it's important to see everything and to, to acknowledge that everything has its place and that not only the big things are important but even those tiny little things that maybe don't seem important, I can learn from them. And the other thing that I really, really resonated with is that she says she loves all the bush. And I, what I take from that is that it's my role in projects to fall in love with country and to actively seek that out, that love. So that's the filter that I come to projects with. And I thought that it was important you understand that because I'm going to talk about some projects. And I've gone through this process in every project to try and fall in love with country through the way that my grandmother's taught me. This is a little project in some ways and it's a big project in other ways. It's in um, Ganyama, which is here in Alexandria. It's actually a pool, as you can see. The, the image you can see on the um, other side is, a, is the eastern suburbs Banksia scrub. Now, what have these got to do with each other other than that this country is eastern suburbs Banksia scrub country? Um, we were brought in quite late to this project and we've continued working with them. With them. Um, it was one of those projects where they were like, oops, we've given it an Aboriginal name, we better bring some Aboriginal people in to, um, to work on the project kind of projects. Um, but it's been a project where I did actively seek out what is this country and it's a country, even though it's in Alexandria, which if you've been there it's like, you know, where's the water here? Actually it's water country. This country has sweet water, so sweet water is fresh water or it's water that literally tastes sweet when you drink it. We don't get it very much through our taps, but if you've ever tasted sweet water, you know what it is. Um, it flows through bitter water. Bitter water is like um, is sometimes called sour water or bubbly water. It's the water that is um, in between salt water and fresh water. It's sort of like that in-between space. And then, the, and then there's salt water. And this, this site has a bit of all of those. But it also has, um, a, a, particularly it has bitter water. Um, those words that you can see there, those words are all water words. And what we did was the water repelled, we used water repelling paint to create those words. They're now being, it was temporary, it's now being installed permanently, we hope. This is a site, um, Wyanamata. Um, Wayana, Wayanya means mother, Mata means place of water. And it's a site uh, where now there's a big city that's just about to be built out in Western Sydney. Um, they call it the Eritropolis, which I don't know why you would call anything that, or Bradfield, and I don't know why you'd call anything that either, um, because it's got a lovely name that has everything to do with water, a mothering place to do with of water. 
And I've, I had to make a difficult decision to work on this project um, because uh, it, it's not a project that, um, you know, to look at this beautiful country, how could I possibly be part of that? But I wanted to do whatever I could to make a difference. There's a lot more to say about this, but I, I've just gotten my five-minute warning, so I've got to keep going. This is a project um, that is going to be the first building out there, the Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility. And again, it's a building that's not in the middle of any water, but it, it is all about water because everything we talked about while we were designing this building was about how water can interact with this place because it's a floodplain. Now, the other tree, the other uh, image is of a tree. That is an, um, a tree that I had many relationships through this project and it's getting to, just about to start to be built. But that tree was one of the most important relationships that I had because that we, we're pretty sure is a canoe tree, a Nawi tree, and it's right on the water and it's not – what we've done is actually designed so that when you go up to the top of this building, you see that tree. So it's an orienting factor. That tree gave me some, some messages to share. I know you can take this or leave it. My cousin says that. You can take this or leave it, but trees sometimes give me messages. I just realised you probably don't know about that. But anyway, um, that um, tree, she said – it's a grandmother tree, very clearly female energy about that tree. And she said, walk lightly here. Don't put heaviness down on this place. It's a struggle that there's an airport going there. But anyway, she said, be kind, work together um, and care for my children. And then she said, you are all my children too. This project is with some elders. It's here in University of New South Wales and it's called Whale or Gurawal. And you can see that this is actually a story um, that's uh, – these images across the top are a series of animals and they crawl up these stairs. And effectively, um, the whole thing is about how you go from fresh water to bitter water to salt water. And there's more to say about this, but it's a lovely project and I encourage you, to, it's open, I encourage you to go and visit it because it's telling a bunch of stories and we've now um, recorded those stories and you're going to be able to listen to the elders telling the stories in the near future. And it's about water, a lot about water. This one is in Darling Harbour. It's, a, um, again, a project that is completely um, surrounded by water. It's rebuilding a massive... Um, uh, shopping centre. And we won a competition on the basis that we were going to design, um, not to design that country back, to, to, but to design directly in response to that country, to the relationship that sandstone has to water and how that water place, which is right on the harbour, has a relationship not only to the sandstone and to the water but to the marshes. Now, we can't put marshes back there, but we are having conversations about maybe in 235 years, because, you know, it took us 235 years to get here, to get rid of them. Um, maybe we can get the marshes back there then. Now, I'm thinking a different, you know, if you're thinking about forever, maybe it's not forever, but it's well beyond our lifetime, isn't it? And this is the final little project I'm going to talk about. As a, again, I mentioned that this is Wayanya, mother, matter, place of water. This is a, a, play, a project that is an ongoing project. It's at what, Rossmore Grange, which is again in Western Sydney. And it's a place, where, if you go there, that it's right sitting on the Mother Creek, which is South Creek. And um, it's a project that's been very... It's very hard to, to tell you what this project is in, in one minute, but 
um, it's effectively about what is living infrastructure and how can we embed living infrastructure back into projects. But it is actually about um, how um, this mother place, Mother Creek, can uh, re-embed Aboriginal cultural values. And it's a, a big, it's much bigger than this little project, but it is also this little project. And it's a very important one about relating female to water because all the women in this room will know our relationship to water. They will know as we cycle every month the relationship to water, salt water. Did you read Gora? Thank you, Danielle. <laughs> so that was beautiful and privileged to hear about, um, you know, your ideas and where they've come from. Um, we've got lots more time to talk about and um, go into some of those um, really interesting I think, aspects to your work. And what I've also done is I've asked each speaker to respond with an image or an idea about how they interpret life below water. So I think that's what Danielle will show now and then maybe talk briefly about it and then... Yeah, to the audience. Look, um, it's very hard for me to just talk about water um, because country isn't just water. Country is everything that is encompassed in an environment. It's the land, it's the air and it is the water. But it's also everything that we... Um, everything we know about those things and everything we don't know. It's our way of caring for, everything, all, for, for all of those things. It's the knowledge that it's embedded into those things because... Despite what people may think, knowledge is embedded into country. And so while our lives have changed as Aboriginal people, our life, um, certainly the knowledge is still there. And I guess that's the, the thing that I wanted to raise is that we can't take water out of country and treat us separately. It's got to be encompassing all of the understandings just as in a small way because, for instance, the reason that that Mother Creek is sick right now is because the farms nearby have have been putting um, fa farm nutrients into the water, whatever those are called, um, fertilisers and other things. And people have thrown fridges in there and other rubbish. And that's um, from the land. But also the air has caused some of the problems with the um, way that the pollutants are happening there. So water and air and land, even if you understand those in their um, just their material values, are so important in, in context with each other and to be related to each other. And it's very hard for me to take it outside of each other. But I want us to think about it with the question that I'm going to pose you. So it kind of goes back to that first question that you had at the beginning and it's something that we'd like the audience now to um, have a think about. How can we change our relationship to water country so that we can live in this place forever? Not a small question <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I encourage you to engage in it with those longer thoughts about space and time and, um, and how we can all, each of us, act in a different way. Who wants to let us know what they've been talking about? Who, who's keen to share some of the conversations or thoughts that they've had? I think part of it, we were talking about how at least some of our relationship has changed. You know, the, the harbour used to be a place to dump things. So people are now, you know, the harbour's cleaned up quite a bit and has a lot to go with. But, you know, that type of thing with changing the, the dialogue in it. But... Yeah, we, we used to, yeah, it was a dumping ground. We used to say the solution to pollution is dilution. That was the big saying. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a good idea? Just dilute it out to where? To, so to, how to, we to water. Affecting yeah. 
And so was anyone thinking about places when, when, when you know, as Danielle was talking about water country, so places that were directly have large bodies of water or small bodies of water, or are there other ways that, um, you know, water country can be thought about with long-term ideas? Cleaning up the environment is what we were talking about. I heard this story on the radio this week about Bogle and Champagne. Did anyone Yeah, I remember that when I was a kid. Yeah, well, they recently right. found out that they died because a flour mill was dumping flour into the creek and it was turning into hydrogen sulphide. Mm. And it killed them. In the, it wasn't a murder wasn't at all. It wasn't a murder at all. Yeah. But there, there's an example of the uh, pollution coming back and killing us. And the recent floods on the north coast, uh, the, the rivers were polluted and then people were surfing and they were getting sick. So if we don't take care, we get sick. Okay, thanks. Um, great. So we will continue our conversations as well. Um, we might move on um, to Alex's presentation. We've also asked Alex um, to give us um, you know, some insight into his practice and to how he came to be where he is today and working on some of those projects. So, um, Alex, over to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, everyone. Um, so, I'm an industrial designer. I'm from Melbourne. Um, and our studio is called Reef Design Lab. Um, so, we do a lot of... Uh, essentially habitat creation. So we do a lot of work with scientists looking at different ways that we can restore marine infrastructure and create artificial reefs. Um, and I had a quick slide here about just sort of how I got into this kind of work. I mean, when I was really young, I was upset. I had one obsession. It was my little sort of nerdy fish tank and the movie Titanic. So essentially... I was a massive dork, obviously. So our studio's really grown from those two obsessions um, and kind of into the studio where we do a lot of, yeah, restorative kind of work, uh, certainly at, you know, a relatively small scale, of course. Um, my graduate project uh, from uni was looking at coral farming, coral gardening, that sort of work. And we were really looking at, you know, how we could redesign these coral farming structures. So, I mean, most people know now about, you know, coral farming as a, is a very small-scale sort of restorative technique for tropical corals. Um, and they're starting to do this on the Great Barrier Reef. And obviously, that's a very, you know, only one technique among, you know, many. And it you know, is not something we could replace the Great Barrier Reef with, of course, but this is like a small thing that a lot of community groups do. So the project was really about how could we explore this process, how could we create structures that use 3D printing, that use natural materials. So we came up with this kind of modular Lego-like structure using ceramic. You think about the longevity of materials, you think about ceramic is, you know, amphora are still found at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea after thousands of years. So the idea was, you know, how could we create something that would last, you know, a hundred years underwater and be used as a, a permanent coral farming device? as well as a habitat for, you know, other species that use these uh, coral farms, essentially. So this was a project we did in the Maldives in 2018. So we sort of did, you know, set up this structure as, as a, a kind of conceptual project to test out, you know, how this sort of system would work. Um, 
And it's, you know, it's worked really nicely. I think, you know, we've incorporated 3D printing, uh, you know, ceramics and sort of restorative structures. We've sort of also used a bit of optimization software to look at, you know, what the perfect kind of, uh, you know, lattice-like structure would be for this kind of uh, work. And, I mean, I was just there a few months ago with my partner and I, we got some really nice-looking images. But I wanted to show this because... I think it's really important to, like, these images look beautiful, you know, and it would be really easy for, you know, a developer to sort of say, oh, look, let's use these, you know, artificial structures, you know, and, and create that dredged inlet that we want to do. Let's mitigate our effects by using these sort of systems. And that's really obviously what we do not want to do. So whenever we talk about this project, we always talk about how important how important it is to just make it clear that, these sort of mitigation techniques, you know, really have to be managed and, you know, can't be used to just destroy natural reefs. They're a really small restoration technique that have to be managed appropriately. Um, so, I mean, this project's really been a bit of a catalyst for our studio to do a lot of our other work. And we've had, you know, we've been really lucky to have the work um, in a lot of exhibitions. And it is a kind of sort of grandiose structure, but really, like I said, it's been a catalyst for a lot of our other work. Um, something that we do a lot of is, is we create a lot of more traditional and economical artificial reefs to create habitat for fish. And we've, we, we, do some, we do a lot of work with like, uh, looking at how we can mould these sort of systems really economically, as well as using different techniques like large-scale 3D printing of sand. So you can imagine how you could use local material. And there's quite a lot of projects that are happening around the world using these sort of techniques now as well. Um, another great project that we did with two scientists that are sitting right in front of us here, Gigi and Dave. This was with the uh, Opera House. These are the reefs that are just out on the waterway here. And these structures were really, I mean, you guys can maybe talk about them a bit later, but these structures were really looking at, you know, if we're going to design these sort of artificial reefs, how can we optimise them, you know, and, and sort of research how fish actually use these structures? So these were looking at, you know, the difference between a simple sort of uh, complex structure and, and a structure with a bit more uh, complexity on the interior. And I think this has <laughs> been in the news recently now because there were some white seahorses on the structures. So it's been a very uh, successful project, I guess. But you guys could probably talk about that later as well. Um, Another project uh, that we're doing at the moment is to do with mangrove restoration in Victoria, and this is with uh, uh, Melbourne University. So this is kind of like, I mean, obviously mangroves are a fantastic natural coastal defence, you know, and unfortunately, we, especially around our cities, we've lost a lot of those, uh, you know, native mangrove forests. So this is a project looking at how can we try to bring back that species using a sort of hybrid approach, so how can we create, you know, a, a bit of hard infrastructure that could grow mangroves inside and behind so that they have protection from day one? And uh, this is a, it's sort of, yeah, an interesting hybrid approach to coastal defence um, and especially uh, interesting because when I started this project, I didn't even realise we had this species of uh, temperate mangrove that far south in Melbourne. So that was my own ignorance. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is a particularly interesting um, area and I think this is really goes, 
sort of in line with a lot of these, you know, uh, sort of living sh uh, shorelines, which is, you know, a massive research uh, area at the moment um, and has been for a long period of time as well. Um, so, you know, we're starting to sort of upscale a lot of these structures as well, looking at how, you know, it can be really economical to install these. We're starting to look at, you know, how these could uh, be used using biodegradable concretes and some really interesting researchers looking at that at, from Melbourne Uni as well. I think this is also a particularly interesting project because we're really looking at how, like, how can we design these sort of structures naturally? These structures you see on the screen, particularly unnatural, and there was some sort of negative feedback about these. So we are sort of looking at, you know, how could we design them so that they're perhaps a little less offensive? And I have to also say, you know, there's a lot of other restoration techniques around the world that do just use natural materials, you know, use timber, you know, and, and sort of found objects to do this kind of work. And, you know, it's really important to, I think, look at that and see how those sort of techniques could be used as well. However, as most of us know, engineering, especially coastal engineering, is a particularly uh, conservative area so we are you know still sort of forced to use concrete a lot of the time but within it the concrete we use we're always looking at you know uh, how to reduce the amount of Portland cement using byproducts we could probably talk about materials later um, so I think this that sort of hybrid approach to coastal defense is another sort of brings me to this other project we're doing for Geelong City Council where they're looking at protecting an area of their coastline that's eroding and we were brought in to kind of look at you know how could we sort of rethink our approach to coastal defense when it is needed to use you know a human-made structure from concrete how could we look at you know, if we're going to use concrete, how can we optimise it to use the minimal amount of material? How can we incorporate a lot of, you know, textures, habitat? In these units, we've even incorporated recycled shell as well. So this is a, a kind of a really another sort of hybrid approach to coastal defence, I think, that looks at, you know, using a sculptural language, using an, an ecological language, as well as trying to create structures that are slightly more porous as well so not just the surface but the way that we're actually laying out this wave break structure is well actually the way that the units are designed is they're designed to sort of undulate so you know it's not designed to sort of mitigate uh, or attenuate rather sort of 95 percent of wave energy it's really designed to be a more porous structure so you will still get some kind of small amounts of erosion but we're hoping to sort of you know reduce wave energy by about 60 percent and this is i think also a great community opportunity for people to come down and look at eco-engineering opportunities for, for kids to be able to swim through these structures, you know, at high tide, for people to go and, and explore these structures at low tide. And this is also in an area, you know, where um, we, we probably would have had a lot of sort of rocky coastline, um, but a lot of that has been lost. I should actually say, though, to be honest, I think this area has always been very sandy, but this is kind of a technique that is starting to being used, you know, in terms of coastal defence in a lot of areas where it's been completely, you know, it's been completely changed. So a lot of that rocky coastline or oyster reef, you know, has been completely destroyed. So now there is a need to bring in a lot of these sort of structures. Um, within this, though, 
there's obviously a lot of other techniques. You know, natural rock can be used, like timber structures like I was talking about before. I think it's always just important to talk about it doesn't just have to be a fancy digitally designed structure like this. And we're particularly interested in, you know, not just pushing like our product, but like looking at, you know, how can this be a combined approach with lots, lots of different techniques? Um, so, and that I guess brings me to another really cool Sydney based project that we're involved with, which is the Living Seawalls project based out of Sydney Institute of Marine Science, just across the harbour. Um, and this is a really interesting project that I think, you know, this really builds on, you know, decades of um, eco engineering. Uh, research that's been done by uh, people around Sydney and around the world. And this is looking at, you know, if we're, like, what are the ways, if we're having to build flat seawalls, you know, obviously a good approach to building coastal defence is creating very porous, uh, you know, gradient structures, anything as close to a natural rocky shoreline as possible. But if we have to have flat seawalls due to engineering requirements, why can't we incorporate you know, these highly porous habitat structures. It's a really simple uh, kind of thing that can be done. And the Living Seawalls Project is, is researching this. So again, rather than a designer just coming in and being like, okay, we can create this, you know, amazing parametric kind of design, we really need to test, okay, well, what are the different geometries that actually do make a difference, you know, prevent invasives from coming in, uh, from colonising? So it's a particularly interesting project, and I, I think this project will help to sort of act as a bit of a, um, a, a sort of blueprint for how we could design, you know, this human-made infrastructure in the future if we have to implement that sort of stuff. So, you know, I mean, the whole point of this project is you can imagine, you know, these beautiful, rocky, complex, natural, you know, rock sort of shorelines have been changed just to completely flat seawalls that are often just completely devoid of any life. So you can understand, I mean, the concept is relatively simple. I think it's very similar to, you know, how we might be greening the sides of buildings. It's essentially trying to green marine infrastructure. Um, and yeah, this has been a, a fantastic project, you know, a long-term project for us to be involved with. I think it incorporates a lot of interesting themes, but... Um, we're hoping that, yeah, like I said, you know, this will be started to adopted, um, you know, around the country and, and it's starting to be adopted around the world as well. Um, you know, we sort of, in terms of how we design a lot of the things, we do a lot of 3D scanning of existing rocky structures um, and the, with the scientists we work with as well, um, you know, provide us with a lot of that information. Um, in terms of what we do in-house, you know, we do a lot of... 3D printing, but we're really mixing like digital fabrication techniques with traditional moulding techniques to make things economical because we're needing to test these structures, you know, at a large scale. So we're really like mixing that like, you know, I mean, I'm particularly like an old school sort of designer as well. Like when I went through uni, I never wanted to learn CAD. I thought I could just sculpt everything. That's obviously not the reality. Um, but yeah, I think... Uh, I'm particularly, I think another reason I got into this is I'm particularly interested when you do snorkel and dive, you know, a lot of human-made structures like piers, you know, I'm particularly inspired by how quickly, you know, life can come back if it's given the opportunity. Um, and I suppose that sort of leads me to my response of 
life below water is, you know, we live in these, you know, completely changed areas like Sydney Harbour or even Port Phillip Bay that a lot of the times do not, it doesn't match what it used to be like. So if we are, you know, going to be still building in these environments, why can't we do it in a way that, you know, creates opportunities for nature and it just means that everyone you know, has a much nicer sort of living experience. And I'd love the idea that, you know, in the future, you know, people could swim in the harbour as like, you know, a regular thing. And I think that is slowly happening and it's not going to happen just from a fancy seawall. It's like a, you know, a huge effort from so many different parties. Um, but, yeah, it's a particularly interesting area that we work, I think, and we've been very lucky to work in this field. Thanks, Alex. Can I ask what that actually is? Like, um, yeah. I think that's a Tasmanian blenny, David, am I correct? Or a blenny, right? Yeah, where is he living? This is actually in Port Phillip Bay. So I used to, you know, go down to the piers and I'd like, you know, put up my little sort of test structures and, yeah, so this is a really early one. So that's one one of your structures. That was my graffiti. Okay, so you've created a little habitat for... Yeah, so, you know, okay. we would just cast in various mm -hmm. kinds of materials, 3D print and then cast, you know, using flexible moulds yeah. and we would test a lot of things around the pier. So yeah. I think, you know, because I was so into my fish tanks and creating the little habitats, yeah. when you have aquariums, especially as a kid, the fish always die. So <laughs> it was much better to test it, you know, in the real environment. So. Yeah, on a much larger scale, I think, than yeah. your small aquariums. Yeah. But, yeah, they look happy. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. And I think it's great to see also, I guess, how some of your artistic ambitions as well have kind of been implemented in with collaborative projects with scientists and researchers and still, um, you know, working in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, important to, I guess, use like, you know, a sort of visual language to, language to communicate, you know, a lot of what we do and a lot of what the, the scientists are doing as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's been... And that's always difficult, you know, for us. Like, it'd be, you know, it'd be much easier for us if we were just creating product and trying to push it to developers and stuff. But we do feel that it is important for us to properly test, you know, a lot of these things, which takes years, and to, to make sure that it's, it is actually a positive and not a negative, and it's not just a nice fancy bit of 3D printed greenwashing, which, you know, I mean, that's, we've been talking about that a bit, but, like, some of our work has been used for, you know, uh, I guess media stories that immediately greenwash what we're doing, like, you know, 3D printed artificial reefs, you know, can, can save the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, that's just so, so absurd and completely um, does not communicate what we're doing accurately at all. So... Um, so, I mean, I guess that could be some of the downside of using this, like, very appealing visual language is it mm. can be, like, misappropriated really easily. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think it's, very, it's obviously very seductive as well. So I think we'll, um, we'll go on to um, the audience question now because I think from what Alex has shown us as well, um, obviously his work's very, you know, human-made, but um, also... Um, for creating habitats for the non-human. Um, so the question we wanted to ask you as well, and I think we can get the question is, so um, what human design projects have changed the way that you think or experience water? So, you know, are there spaces in 
in the ocean or in rivers or maybe not even in places that have water that change the way you think about water. If you need a prompt, I could, I could answer that question. Um, um, something that comes to mind for me would probably be something like an ocean pool, which is quite, a, I think, um, a light touch. One of the ocean pools near where I am, um, you know, it's mostly made out of rocks. It's not a huge um, built intervention into the environment, but it's definitely, it's human made. It makes me feel a bit more secure and, and safe than I was if I was out in the ocean. So that for me would be an inspiring human design project. But I'd love to hear from you, the audience. So we see somebody, yes, let us know what you were talking about. Have you all heard of the clothing label Patagonia? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, responsible clothing. So, um, Yves Sharon, the CEO, he tells a story on YouTube that one of his stores in San Francisco, his staff all started getting sick and he had an environmental consultant come in and measure the air quality and said, basically, you've got formaldehyde on the top of all your T-shirts. And uh, so he flew to Mexico to see where the cotton was being made and saw all these planes just spraying fields of cotton with formaldehyde that were then flowing into river streams, killing fish, birds. And then that was a circular sort of economy that we were then also getting vegetables that we get in Australia mm. Mexico, and then consuming that formaldehyde. So nice. Yeah. I think it all starts with how we procure and how we buy things as well. We have a responsibility to think how... How is that corporation using chemicals that flow into the water before we get to sort of vendors? Yeah, so your example hasn't, isn't exactly a positive one, but it's definitely showing two kinds of cycles. One, which is the cycle of water, that when you put the chemicals into the ground, it goes into the water that ultimately end up... And, yeah, and... The, be, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah. And has that clothing label now changed what they're doing? Or have they made it public? Oh, yeah, They've made it... Mm. Cotton, mm. polyester, and they won't buy cotton from farms that use chemicals, mm. organic cotton. Costs a lot more, but you know, this is my son, you know, his generation was so onto that, and my generation was fast fashion, wear it, throw it. Yeah. So I think we have a responsibility as consumers to maybe slow down, and that has a knock on effect to those other SDGs. Absolutely, and I think if you love something as well when it comes to clothing, you probably hold on to it a lot longer as well. And so there's something to be said about something that's made beautifully as well. Um, who else has got a project? Yep, up the back there. Um, you might have to shout a bit. My husband and I were talking about in the Netherlands, you know, they have to reclaim a lot of their land because of the, you know, what he wanted to speak from and And they have built some very innovative aqueducts that actually the vehicles that drive, actually drive under the water, and the boats that go above um, versus having drawbridges or things like that. Um, so just some really interesting ways of you know, thinking about um, in water um, travel and um, land all kinds. Absolutely, and I think um, the Netherlands is really interesting is because they've had to deal with, you know, f flooding and water for so long that things like design are very, very important there. And, in fact, designers are, you know, up there in the government with the treasurer and um, just because they've had to deal with it for so long, which I think now we're all discovering um, in other parts of the world as well that water is going to be, you know, creeping in and creeping up. And so tunnels under the water as well and boats above. Crazy. Boat bridges. Yeah, I kind of like it. Um, who else wants to share something that they've been talking about? Yep. 
Uh, we spoke about some of the um, advanced wastewater treatment plants that are being designed now. So things like, sadly, the Western Corridor in Queensland, which has never actually been turned on to supply water, which is actually inspiring how they've been able to close the circle a bit on the wastewater and treat it to a standard that's suitable for drinking. So do you think is Queensland, I mean, are they like a kind of best practice example of of somewhere that that's happening? to turn on the switch once the water runs out and they realise that they need to, yeah, it might be too late. It would prevent the water going, it's water going into the ocean. Yeah. Um, so it's a totally inspiring scheme, it just never quite makes it to turned on. I always think about the, um, and Danielle, I can't remember the proper name, but the eel traps in, yeah, I was... Yeah, I always find those are really fascinating, just such interesting sort of ancient examples of, um, you know, how people manipulated water. I think that's one of the best examples. And that only a few years ago became a yeah. heritage listed yeah. site. That's Butch Bim. Oh, mm. Mm. Yeah. But, um, you can say Butch Bim. Butch Bim. Yeah. Um, oh, it's come. <laughs> Butch Bim's um, now a, a World Heritage Site yeah. and it's um, down in Gunditjmara country, which is sort of on, in Victoria... Um, Western Victoria okay. and it's an incredibly um, beautiful landscape but what's most interesting for me is how the country made the people into who they are and the stories that tell you that and it's actually the the volcanic country that actually turned turned that country into exactly what you're talking about where it could be eel trap country but there's stories that tell you about that are actually, um, I can't tell them, they're not my stories, but they're, it's well worth going and visiting um, mm. the Bujbim um, eel traps, houses and how the, the landscape was manipulated. Also how the eels became tradable um, because they learnt how to uh, store them for a long period of time. Mm. And eels are so fascinating as well because they have such huge journeys mm -hmm. that they take from where they, you know, I think the eels, you know, in Parramatta, they, yeah. they stay in the river and then they go all the way out to... I don't know exactly it's islands. Coral Sea. Coral Sea. And New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, and breathe there and then come back. And, you know, you see them sometimes stuck in, in sewers. They're pretty remarkable. Mm. The story of the eel. Um, yeah, anyone else have someone, something to share? Yep. Someone. Yeah, there's a guy who lives in Bronte, uh, or maybe it's one guy, who um, has an app um, called uh, Drone Shark. Drone Shark. He's got like 150,000 uh, Instagram followers. Okay. And uh, he basically has a drone. He goes out every morning at 6 a.m. and it over the coast of Bondi, Bondi, all around him, and finds sharks and dolphins, rays, um, whales, and um, records them and then puts them on for everyone to see. And he's been pulled up by um, campaigners and environmentalists for his work. And he's also inspired me to buy a drone, so I go out, my, I go out myself and do the same thing, although we haven't had much luck. 
compared to him, every day he sees some of the most incredible stuff. But I send my drone out and find very little. You find, you find his drone got there first. Well, that, that, that's a, I think that's a great example as well about how, you know, kind of maybe technology is bringing the ocean back to you if you're not able to get out there and, you know, go and see those things for yourself, which obviously can be quite challenging. That, that's inspiring you and, and making you appreciate those um, animals more. Okay, one more, yeah, and then we'll... Yeah? Sure. The man-made reefs, um, so obviously life on top of it, if we have animals becoming extinct, is there certain habitats that you can create that can prevent certain species becoming extinct? Is that something that the government is even aware of or interested in? Yeah, I mean, I th there are some, you know, some scientists that are working on specific, you know, sort of species, and normally that's mostly for kind of bush habitat and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, if you're, like, referring to, I guess, you know, sort of our, like, first project, you know, the modular reef for coral restoration, unfortunately that's obviously global warming that's wiping out coral, so, you know, there's no one structure you could design or anything like that. But, um, I mean, in terms of... Uh, like, there's quite a few people working on projects like creating sort of penguin burrows and that sort of thing um, in the harbour as well. I mean, Dave and Gigi, I don't know if you were, like, sort of targeting one specific fish species, but I think it was a more sort of designing, just sort of seeing what would sort of arrive, right? Well, maybe we'll invite Dave, David Booth and, and Gigi to talk a bit about their project because they are here and I think it's very relevant to what you've asked. Um, so um, David and Gigi have worked on the Opera House artificial reef system and recently there have been new discoveries of species that are very rare. So maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about the work that you've done with the reef at the Opera House and what has happened recently. Um, yeah, so I, I just start off by saying, you know, Sydney Harbour is an amazing place. You probably know this already. Um, it's a place which is mainly built environment. Now, there's, I think they worked out there's like 80% or 70% of the edges of the harbour are um, sea walls or, or piers and that sort of thing. Um, so, so and on the other hand, um, you know, in the 70s when I learned to dive, you would not have jumped into Sydney Harbour, but now we do, right next to the harbour, Gigi and I, for our, our project. Um, and we've also identified over nearly 700 species of fish in Sydney Harbour, even though it's a built environment. That's more than New Zealand plus England, cold coast. So it's pretty impressive. And it's because we're partly tropical, partly temperate. There are reasons for that. But also because there's like natural habitats. But a lot of that built environment, as I think Alex said, was once, um, once mangroves or rocky reef. And so um, our little project, which is going to get bigger, um, uh, started with the Opera House and been a great partner. And we decided to, along, along the eastern wall, to add um, small reef enhancements, as we like to call them. Because, as you probably see already with the little blenny photo, um, fish like little places to hide. Small fish. And, of course, big fish are attracted by, small, uh, attracted by little fish in places. So Alex helped us design these reefs that you, I think you saw back then. And over the last three years, they have encrusted um, slowly. Um, in fact, the very first week we put them down, um, we a big octopus moved in underneath one, a Sydney or gloomy octopus. Um, he went, but other things have come in their place. So, yeah. so you know, we've seen a lot more fish species there than we've seen at the other sites that we're monitoring around the harbour. 
So that's the good news. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, we hadn't been in for about a year um, because of COVID and the storms, water quality. And to our surprise, uh, Gigi spotted a white seahorse, which you saw the picture of. We saw four in total. Yeah, and, and the white seahorse is actually one of um, Australia's two or three endangered fish species. Um, it's one of only two seahorses in the world that are endangered. The other one's in South Africa, and there's hundreds of them. So, you know, it's sort of a, a dubious reputation. So we have a separate project trying to restore them, and, and that goes to the question whoever was asking it. They are an endangered animal, and so we're putting down these seahorse hotels, which are like a big, just a big cage, really. But but some my clever colleague at DPI Fisheries called them seahorse hotels. So it's become a global gangbuster of a, a media story. And so what we've done is we collect the males from just out here at Chowder Bay. Um, they're pregnant, the males get pregnant, take them to Sydney Aquarium where they have the babies. Uh, the babies are reared by our students and, and um, uh, staff there. For about six months they tag them and then they pop them onto these hotels which just give them that little boost uh, until they're ready to move back onto natural sites which are also restoring. So, yeah, so even though the reefs here we're, we're not particularly targeting seahorses, um, they're arriving, but at these other spots we are trying to enhance that in, endangered species by using those little structures. And the ones here we find interesting because they're, they're fairly far up the harbour compared to the other ones. So, you know, it's, it's, it's okay diving here, but you wouldn't go and jump in on purpose here. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a nice story and we're hoping to spread that out into other harbour sites. We are part of a fairly large initiative now called Project Restore based at the Marine Institute. So the living seawalls you saw as part of that and there's some restoring seagrass. So just to sort of spruce the harbour up a bit for the animals that live there. Did you? Did I, did I cover it all? Sorry, I got it all. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, David. Yeah, great. Great to have you here. And it was good to get it from the horse's, seahorse's mouth. I literally just made that up. Thank you. There's another cool project in Tasmania that's trying to bring back the spotted handfish. And they've designed these... Uh, it's a friend of mine, Jane Blad Bladenford. Bladford? Names. <laughs> um, and she's created this sort of single, like, ceramic kind of stalk system. And that's because the species likes to... Uh, you know, lay their eggs on seagrass or uh, – I know I'm stuffing this up. It's a particular type of long stalk structure which has been completely decimated. So, you know, that's an interesting project. Um, it would be worth looking up. That's really targeting this one uh, vulnerable species, which is, yeah, the spotted handfish. So. That probably brings us on to a moment here where we can have a bit of a conversation and something um, that I think relates to what you've been talking about is this concept of time and it takes time for, I guess, some of your you know, designs to, to start working to see the effects and the outcomes and to see how tangible they are. Um, and I know Danielle also um, has you know, um, things to share about working with time and how important that is. So I might ask you both um, how important time is in your work and um, obviously everybody needs more time but how maybe you could give us some specific examples of um, how sure. a project you know obviously people want and clients want results straight away and sometimes it's best to yeah I mean everything with our our work you know there's this massive time factor and and I suppose like you say you're right I mean clients kind of want results immediately not our scientific clients because they, you know, the whole point of their work is it takes time to get results. But, yeah, I mean, when we do kind of work with, you know, I guess government clients, 
that's probably why we we do put a bit of an importance on you know having this sort of interesting visual to what we do so that there's this like human attraction I guess to what we do from from sort of day one and then you know over time that's when it actually becomes like ecologically productive or at least we hope um and so yeah I mean time is like a quite a complex one for our studio because you know designers are able to create you know products or whatever it is so quickly whereas you know everything that we've done you know it it takes years to get results and it's also tricky because like what if the result is is sort of you know negative or not as productive you know as you thought it's hard as you know a studio to kind of admit those things but it's also really important to kind of admit those you know when it something hasn't been as successful as you'd hoped um so yeah time is a is always something we think about with everything that we do and we've been lucky because we did start relatively early you know a few years ago because i mean your designs you don't really you can't really test them out in a, in a studio you know it te- it seems almost like you create the the basic design substructure and then it's up to the elements and all these factors that are out of your control, whether they, yeah. I guess, latch onto it and start growing themselves. Yeah, um, and if you, I mean, if you talk to any scientist, there's so many variables, you know, depending on different kinds of environments, but even the conditions mm-hmm. of those environments, which I guess are also constantly changing because of climate change. So, um, yeah, it's not something you can... You have to kind of constantly adapt, I guess. And, yeah, it's, it's quite complicated. Um, <laughs> Interesting, though. It's very ongoing, I think. Yeah. And, Danielle, I'd love to hear from you about time because we spoke a bit about this before. Yeah, I um, mean, time's a tricky one for us because, for one thing, we're, um, we're pushing the edge of what is designing with country. Um, and if you haven't heard of that, it's, uh, it's in part... A, um, a framework that's being established by the Government Architects Office and in part it's what Aboriginal designers and probably Aboriginal people have always done forever. It's just that we're now framing it through, um, you know, a, a design process. Um, we, you, we talk about country-centred design and country-centred design is sort of opposing human-centred um, design and what that means is that humans aren't at the centre of everything, that we need to consider everything in that whole system in order that the whole system, which is interconnected and relates to each other, can continue to exist. And this is where the time part comes in and where the forever question, even if forever is always or or 60,000 years or 20,000 years or 235 years, whatever you want to understand as forever, um, it's still... part of the the consideration that we try to have how can we um and it's a it's a bit about sustainability but it's also a bit about how are we going to continue to live together if we don't change change our behavior and so time um of 235 years you know my uh, ancestors were walking country without anyone bothering them about you know get go and live in that reserve or anything like that but in our practice as well, um, we in an, in an ideal world, we would come in and work on projects before anyone else so that we can provide um, the understanding from country in order that um, d- designers can respond to that. Mm. What's mostly happening, though, is that we come in after um, and if it's a good project, 
where and usually built environment projects uh, happen over a long period of time. But if it's a good project, we still we can catch up and we can still do work. But the best project is when we're doing it in advance and um, we're the first people in and we get to help choose the architects and um, yeah. work work in that way. But it's getting there. Yeah. yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about what you meant by the seven generations? Yeah, seven generations planning is an important one. We um, It's an Iroquois um, understanding which is from North America and that what that is is looking at um, seven generations in the past in order that we can plan for seven generations in the future. We talk about it a bit here. It's a, we, we use it differently here. Um, I don't think we probably talked about seven generations in the same way, but as an example, on the South Coast, um, there was... Um, one of there's an author who whose name is escaping me right now, but she wrote this little story about some Aboriginal women who came to visit, and um, this is on our country, um, and uh, these women uh, hadn't been to her farm, which her family had owned for 150 years or something. Um, they'd never been there, but they knew what trees were going to be there because their uh, ancestors had planted those trees, knowing that those trees would never be for them but that would be for their descendants. And that's what planning for not for yourself, it's what planning for country is, it's what planning also for not for humans to enjoy but non-humans as well because if you're planning, if I want to continue to exist, then I need to plan for everything else to continue to exist with me because we rely on each other. Even if it doesn't seem like we do, we'd actually rely much more on each other than what we think we do. Um, we wouldn't have food without bugs and bees, right? But we we sort of poison them out of existence a lot of the time. Anyway, I've gone into another yeah. conversation. No, no, I think I think I loved how you were talking about the seven generations before and the seven generations after, and it's kind of it's it's not within living memory, but it's almost it's 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 not hundred thousand years. It's it's a bit more tangible. Well, well it is, it's sort memory. of living memory in that we na- we can still name the seven generations that mm. were before us mm. in our family. So um, it's not that we live that memory but we know who who those people were Mm. and it's in a way um it means that it's sort of you know a lot changed in a short time and maybe a lot can change in a short time again that's the only hope otherwise I'm a bit um I've lost it I'm a bit pessimistic as as we were speaking a bit earlier and I said I think we're all going underwater (laughs) (laughs) which leads to my next question which is (laughs) <laughs> which we'll have a couple more questions and then the Q&A if I've got enough time. Okay, quickly. So how, um, speaking about water and maybe thinking about some of the examples, you know, from, from the Netherlands and we're all going under, is there a way you work with designers and architects and planners and, and you work with scientists and architects, is there a way that we can actually design better or build better to adapt with with the water, with the rising water? So... Um, not in opposition to it, not building, you know, concrete walls. And, you know, is there ways that we can think about materials um, that are perhaps more porous, things like marshes or um, mangroves or floating devices? I mean, I'd love to know what, what you think about if we can adapt our own design practices to this crazy climate crisis while we're trying to stop it, of course. Yeah, I mean, I suppose <laughs> it would be really nice if... You know, like the projects you work on, Danielle, if people were brought in really early on to think through some of these, um, you know, these ideas. I mean, we often also get brought on as like a nice little side note to a project, you know, especially with like our commercial artificial reef work. 
you know, it's like, okay, they want a bit of fish habitat, you know, we just sort of provide that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it would be really nice if, if these ideas were thought about, <laughs> you know, from mm. the very beginning. And I mean, um, I mean, for us, like, yeah, we're particularly interested in, you know, how we can start making, you know, all of these coastal structures much more porous because that's sort of where our, you know, work is sort of similar. Um, and, you know, there's heaps of opportunity and it's, it's like there's heaps of opportunity to just create, uh, you know, really interesting and productive like ecological sort of habitats as well as just having great spots for people to snorkel and swim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's huge opportunity, but it does take... Um, you know, it does take a bit of a leap of faith, I suppose, and, and for certain people, especially people in government, to actually, you know, do something a bit different, and especially in very... I guess the built environment is always a very conservative area, and we've had a few people who we've worked with, um, you know, whether it's scientists but also people in government who have kind of been like, OK, we want to do this, you know, we want to trial things... And there's a lot of people sort of saying, no, that's too risky or whatever. And no, that's going to blow a budget. So there, there's a lot of like, I guess, individual heroes within a lot of institutes that, you know, do push, uh, I guess, building with nature sort of principles and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, there's, a, there's so many things that could be done. It's really just finding the people who are going to like hero those opportunities. Mm. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at... When I do our work, um, we, the reading country part of our work, which is sort of the little story I told you about my grandmother, that gets... Um, that way of seeing the world gets centred into a, a whole um, way of seeing the project, which I share then with all of the people in the project. And I get asked to reshare this because I'm... Um, very mindful of Indigenous cultural intellectual property, so I protect it by delivering it visually, verbally, myself. And I get asked repeatedly to re-deliver it because people who aren't designers actually really engage with it. And I'm, I'm now next week delivering it for the seventh time to Parliament and that kind of thing, which is great. I'm really glad, but I'm glad... And I'm glad that people get to see the place in a different way. And the way that I'm looking at this is I'm looking in deep time, even up to more recent... Um, colonial time and how those um, understandings of place have been recorded. Maybe they didn't know that what they were recording in artwork, words, um, writings back to, you know, letters back to the um, motherland. And um, what, they, what you'll find is that repeatedly uh, places that flood have been recorded as places that flood. And yet we still build on them. Mm. So there's some really kind of basics that we haven't picked up because we think about the one in 100-year flood, that it's going to happen once every 100 years, but it's actually a prob probability thing. Every year there's a one in 100 chance it could happen. And so that's why now we're having three years of La Nina and probably three years of flooding because every year there's a one in 100 chance that we're going to have a flood in a, in a floodplain. And so it's rethinking some of those things, I think, about the mistakes that... Did I get that right? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I'm not a scientist, so I say sciencey things in front of scientists and I get anxious. Um, but um, but uh, the... The scientist who said it wasn't going to flood should be anxious. 
Well, and look, if you look at old old maps, for instance, from yeah. um, I've seen some from 1797 and 1816 out in Wayanamata country, and you'll see um, old artworks and maps, and that they're recorded on the maps that um, objects are in the trees 50 feet up. And so that's, that's, you know, telling me that it's floods there. And then in 1816, there's a, a painting of a flood. And it, if you look at now what, you know, what happened earlier this year in Windsor and you see um, almost exactly the same scene but, you know, with um, the houses underwater because it's the same, same thing. It's just mm. a painting and a photo. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, no, no. It's, I, a, it's like, very can we get that we right? We will talk more. <laughs> we don't have much time, though, so I do want to be able to invite the audience um, to ask questions. So, um, yes, that lady over there. Um, just following on from what you just were talking about now, um, I'm interested in the idea of designing for flooding. What do you think, and, and you've obviously been designing out of... Um, I don't think we should be developing anything on them personally. I think they're just they're there to be floodplains um, that they need to be flooding that they have a role in flooding and that we need to actually understand that we don't have to develop everything in the world, that some things can just stay as they are and be nature and um, be enjoyed mm. by not only humans but all of the non-humans that um, have relationships to that place and responsibilities to care for that place in a different way than humans do. Actually, I think they're doing a better job than we are right now. Yeah. I, was, I guess I was thinking about... You know, how can you use that space adaptively mm. so that um, we enjoy it when it's not flooding and yeah. we let it flood? I, I wonder if it's about how we see the world, though, um, and how we um, see how how we see enjoying the world and how we see enjoying a floodplain. Do we have to have it a manufactured, built environment there to enjoy it, or can we just go there and enjoy it as it is? Um, can we walk there or can we just go, you know what, this isn't a place for humans and leave it alone. And then it could, that's protecting it. So that is protecting it. And and I'm sure there are many other ecosystems that um, need to be protected like that by humans actually going, hands off, let's go to Mars from this place. Like, you know. Um, well, before we wrap up, um, I did want to end maybe on a positive note. Um, and maybe if I could ask each of you, um, you know, what you would like to, the audience to go home with, um, some, some parting words or final comments about things to think about, um, maybe in a, in a positive way, how we might be thinking about water and how it mm. connects with us and our future. Yeah, I, mean, I, I certainly don't have anything profound to say, but, I mean, for me, I've, I've always been really interested in just, you know, when you have that opportunity to go and snorkel, you know, these built environments, to go and look at, you know, what's living sort of under your local pier and that sort of thing, because that's, that's what's really inspired me to kind of start working in this field, as well as the movie Titanic. But. <laughs> <laughs> and the music? <laughs> yeah, definitely the music. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, like actually going to snorkel, you know, a built environment just to sort of go and see, you know, what's clinging to the surface and what's actually living under there. That's, you know, it can be really depressing, but it can also be quite inspiring as well. So mm. yeah, go snorkel a, a drain, mm. I guess. Mm. <laughs> Danielle. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can come back from that, Alex, um, snorkeling drains. Um, I, I guess the... the the key message from me is about how we relate to to water and our, who we are to water and who water is to us. But not only that, but who we are to country. And I think that it's really important that every one of us understands our relationship to country and who we are to that. And in a way, that's the only way that we're actually going to make it through and not live underwater. <laughs> because otherwise, um, if we're not... If, if all of you... Um, don't understand yourself in relation to um, the place that, that you are, not by implementing something from somewhere else and bringing something from Europe and something from another place, but this place, then until we're doing that, then we're sort of sliding into the water pretty quickly as a, as a place of living. Maybe we'll come and visit you guys underwater with the white seahorses. <laughs> Uh, but honestly, it's it's about how you know knowing ourselves and understand being and uh, position who, who we are and positioning ourselves. And everyone has a place on country if we enter country in the right way. And just ask yourself, have we done that yet? Thanks, Daniel. That's great. Um, so thank you. Thanks. It's been um, great having you two here. I think we've learned a lot. I feel quite privileged to have heard what I've heard tonight. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I wanted to thank also um, the Bill team and especially Caroline Grandjean Thompson, who's the Bill producer, who is leaving us tomorrow. So thank you, Caroline, and um, we'll see you all soon. Have a good evening. That was Joni Taylor in conversation with Alex Goad and Dr Danielle Hromick. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.